Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you for tuning in. I wanted to share with you a new talk I gave recently at the South Dakota Right to Life Convention of 2021. This was their 50th anniversary convention, so they had their first one even before Roe versus Wade was decided on, and they've been contending for life faithfully in South Dakota for so long. Wonderful people in that state, and I had the pleasure of keynoting and rounding out their conference this October. This is a new talk called Lessons from Lincoln, Reagan, and Bonhoeffer. And I wanted to share it with you because I think it has a lot of important and eternal insights in it in this very politically propitious moment we're living in that will be written about in history books forever. And as I always tell you, if we don't end abortion soon, there will be no saving this country. Because contrary to the claims of the modern left, human nature is not infinitely malleable and we're not moving into a progressive utopia. Man is fundamentally flawed and is prone to despotism today as in any other page of human history. But don't worry, this leaves us a sliver of hope. For those with ears to hear, we can learn from the lessons of history to ensure we don't repeat um, its most tragic mistakes. Tragically, some of the most brutal aspects of history are repeated today in the abortion industry and their crimes against unborn children. So as we open up the pages of history together, we will let Abraham Lincoln, Ronald Reagan, and Dietrich Bonhoeffer provide us eternal insights to guide us toward the final abolition of abortion. Buckle up. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. I got in from Southern California last night, so you'll have to uh, forgive me for that. I apologize if you'll forgive my state. Um, things are out of control, yeah? What in the world is going on? Um, we are in a moment where Reagan said, a time for choosing. Um, if you stand in the middle of the road now, you will get run over by a truck. Um, there is no more room now for abdication, for moral neutrality, for I'm not political. We just preach the gospel at this church. Uh, if you say you don't believe in being political, you say you don't believe in justice. Uh, the Bible is very clear that we're to seek good, withhold evil, and establish justice in the city, in the courts. We're like the Israelites. We're aliens in this land. We're passing through, and we should seek the good of the city where we are in exile while, while we are here to honor God, to love our neighbor. And politics is just a way to love neighbors. But I do come from Southern California. I was born and raised there. My mother was the director of a pregnancy resource center in the mid-1980s and late-1980s. I was born in 91. She was directing that pregnancy care clinic while pregnant with me, her firstborn in Southern California, one of the first pregnancy resource centers in that state. So I've been a pro-life activist since I was a fetus. I've been doing this work for a long time and very much raised in the movement and want to be the pro-life generation that abolishes abortion. So I don't hand down a society and a country to my children and grandchildren where babies are still lynched in the womb at the tune of a million a year. But I have to admit, I'm having a little bit of a culture shock right now. Uh, having a governor and her husband pray over you and thank you for your work. I mean, that is crazy, huh? That's some crazy stuff. Now, maybe you're used to it, but honestly, I came up here a little rattled, like I don't even know what to say anymore. Like This last week, Governor Newsom Leaney decided in an American psycho Newsom revenge move, because how dare those Republican rubes try to recall me? 
very pissed about that, that American psycho with that haircut with his axe that he takes to the necks of unborn children in the pro-life movement. And so Gavin Newsom decided it was very important to allow 12 to 17-year-olds to get abortions without parental consent or knowledge and charge it to their parents' insurance plan without them knowing. And insurance companies cannot tell parents that their own children and minors are getting abortions with their parents' money and deductibles. That's what goes on in California, where 12-year-olds are told if you don't get the vaccine, you can leave this public school. That happened this week as well. Um, so more children will end up in the hospital because of vaccinating 12 and 13 year olds than would have ended up in the hospital if they had just not done that and gotten COVID because the kids are basically fine. Um, well, that's what I contend with against in California. So I'm having a little bit of culture shock, but I'm so grateful for your state. This is my second time here. I was here last year for the 40 Days for Life kickoff. And every time just, just leave feeling so filled up and excited. And people are like, Seth, when are you going to move here? And I'm like, but if all the good people leave California, then we're really screwed. Right? What do they say? They say, what happens in California doesn't stay in California. And unfortunately, that's always been true for wickedness. But my goal in calling on my life is to take that phrase and apply it to righteousness. That what happens in California for righteousness will not stay there, but will spread to this country. And so my goal, speaking in pulpits across California, is to rally and mobilize a Christian witness outside every abortion center in the state. Every day they're open, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church by the end of 2022. That's my goal, that's what I've been doing. And I told you last night, if you were here, I told you that there's a stirring happening in the country, huh? I told you that, to quote Churchill, something's going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. But there's only one who dwells beyond space and time. He who created space and time and freaking breathes out Milky Way, drops oceans, laughs animals into existence, and then creates you as the peak and pinnacle of his creation, more valuable than anything else he has made, and gives you dominance and dominion over the creation he has made to be stewards of. Genesis 3, the very first mandate for human beings. That's the God we serve, and he's on the move. Aslan has landed. The lion of the tribe of Judah is on the move. He's the one stirring all men's souls, drawing them from their firesides to cast aside wealth, comfort, and the pursuit of happiness in response to impulses at once awe-striking and irresistible, to quote Churchill. There's a stirring happening, and this is why in the last 11 months, I have spoken in more pulpits than I had in the previous 11 years of my speaking career from my first pro-life message in a church at 19 years old. Something is going on. The only question is, the church rise up and reassert their moral, spiritual, and political duty to love their neighbor, to promote righteousness, and to withhold evil. So we speak up for the unborn simply because they're image bearers of God, and we're called to do so. But we also do it because the unborn is actually how you save the country. And I want to get into that a little bit with you this afternoon. I went, to a West, I went to Westmont College, a Christian college in Santa Barbara, California. Good Lord, never send your children to this college, okay? Now, when I got there at 18 years old, I was a naive Christian pro-life student raised in the church and never thought that Christians would say that they're pro-choice or that Christians would come out and say, oh yeah, Barack Obama, baby, vote for the most pro-abortion president in American political history until, of course, Joe Biden, who's just being puppeteered by, by Kamala Harris like this, um, which we all know. I never assumed that, that there would be Christians who would say, oh yeah, vote for the party of death, like until I got to Westmont College. So this is a Christian college in Santa Barbara, California that hires pro-abortion professors. Their motto is Christus Prumatum Tenens. In Latin, it means Christ preeminent in all things. Praise God, right? Christ is preeminent in all things, except the womb. 
and accept the prenatal Christ who entered human history in a womb because at this Christian college, if you sign a statement of faith, you can still believe that it should be legal to murder babies in the womb and you can have an authority position to shape the minds of the next generation at this Christian college. I started the first pro-life club that had ever existed at Westmont College when I got there as a freshman in 2010. It took me a full, yeah, <laughs> thank you. I mean, that's, I mean, that's an indictment on the college, right? It took me a full semester to find a faculty advisor to get approved as a club. It took me a full semester to find a Christian professor at a Christian university to say, yeah, I'll be your faculty advisor for your pro-life club. So it takes me a full semester to get my pro-life club approved. I find, very out, I find out very quickly that my alma mater doesn't take a position on abortion. They have no position on the issue. By my junior year, I was holding abortion photos on campus to expose the leadership for their refusal to take a position on abortion. I had a meeting with the president of the university, who's still the president there, Dr. Gail Beebe. And I asked him in that meeting, I said, Dr. Gail Beebe, why doesn't Westmont take a position on abortion? You're a Christian college. You have a position on God's view of marriage and on God's view of a sexual ethic in your student handbook. Why not a position on abortion? And he says, well, Seth, there's a lot of issues. And you can't expect us to take a position on all of them. Right, and that type of rot in evangelicalism is very normal now, especially on the, the two bad coasts of this country and the, the, the states who continue to push abortion. But what really revealed this rot and the dangerous ideas that are getting into the pulpit to me was when my faculty advisor sent me an email from a professor at the university, who, and they accidentally included the pro-life faculty advisor in an email thread where a bunch of professors were talking about the recent pro-life speaker in chapel at Westmont, and they were complaining about how she got things wrong and how she could have done better and all this stuff, right? Probably the last pro-life speaker that my alma mater actually allowed to speak in chapel. Well, they accidentally included the pro-life faculty advisor in this email thread where all these professors were getting high off of their own intellectual farts, you know, as is very common in academia. And unfortunately, that's just as common in Christian academia, by, by the way, as well. And there's about four or five universities in the country that are Christian that I'd send my kids to, and, and I could get into that later. So. Here's what a pr Christian professor who signed a statement of faith, how he believes Christians and Christian leaders ought to interact with the difficult moral issue of abortion. Here's what he said. He said, the moral particularities of abortion are so fine textured and open textured that Manichaean distinctions about being pro or anti-abortion strike me as ethically obtuse. Our community and our students are best served when our chapel speakers invite us to tarry in the liminal spaces of complexity. Now, I don't know what that means either. <laughs> and uh, I wish I could tell you that that was just a parody of academic professorial thinking. But brothers and sisters, that's actually much more of a window into the culture's deep, deep-seated confusion on the issue of abortion. And I'm here this evening to tell you that that confusion has invaded the pulpits of this country and has for a long time, woke pastors who claim to be pro-life, but then either abdicate their political duty or tell us, oh, you can vote for Democrats, God doesn't care about your vote. And nowhere has this been more evident than in the pastor, Tim Keller, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Now, let me preface my comments by saying I do believe that many people are in the kingdom of God because of Pastor Tim Keller's writings and works. You probably read one or more of his books. If you don't, you have friends or family member who have the books on their bookcase. I see people going, yeah, 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 right. He's been called the C.S. Lewis of the 21st century, and I believe God has used him mightily. Yes, because God uses sinners. Of course, he has. 
But when it comes to that one point, to quote Martin Luther, at which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, the womb, he folds like a cheap suit. And this is just representative of the wokeism in much of evangelicalism today, an alternative religion that masquerades as Christianity to confuse the bride. And here's what he says in a Facebook post of September of last year, 2020, two months before the election. Remember the platform Tim Keller has, the authority he wields to shape how Christians think, who who look at him as a leader and a shepherd. And here's what he said in his Facebook post. The Bible tells me that abortion is a sin and a great evil. Oh, great. But it doesn't tell me the best way to decrease or end abortions in this country or which policies are most effective. Listen, friends, listen. This means when it comes to voting taking political positions and determining alliances, the Christian has liberty of conscience. And then he finishes by saying, Christians cannot say to other Christians, every Christian must vote for X, or no Christian can vote for X. So Tim Keller says, you have liberty of conscience to vote for the Democrat Party, the party of abortion through point of birth, funded by the public dole, funded overseas in majority black countries, but the Democrat Party says Black Lives Matter, so try to figure out that doozy. And that in California, makes lets 12-year-olds get abortions without parental consent. Yeah, you have liberty of conscience to vote for those politicians because God doesn't care about your vote. Can I just summarize Tim Keller as that? God doesn't care about your vote. So according to Pastor Keller's reasoning, friends, supporting the Democratic Party of the 1850s was acceptable to, to Christians because, you know, ah, the Bible doesn't tell us which policies are most effective at ending slavery. You know, so you, you have liberty of conscience. According to Keller's reasoning, supporting Hitler and his regime must have been acceptable for German Christians because, you know, they have liberty of conscience too. Now, I understand he was a dictator and they couldn't just go to the polls and vote him out. But my point stands. According to Keller, we have freedom to support political regimes and parties that sanction the slaughter of God's image bearers at the tune of a million a year and force you to fund it with your tax dollars because what? There's a lot of issues, to quote the president of my alma mater. <laughs> There's a lot of issues. You can't expect us to take a position on all of them. Well, this is the type of rot that is happening in the church. And if the church doesn't get past this rot and take out these ideas of an alternative religion out of our faith, then not only is this country gone, but we will lose the opportunity to end abortion in a free manner in this country. In California, they're pushing bills now where you can't record when you're sidewalk counseling. No more protecting yourself, no more having footage rolling in case you're attacked. And of course, they passed another one saying, no picketing vaccination sites. You wanna know an organization that does a lot of vaccinations? Planned Parenthood, oh, I'm sure the Democrat, I'm sure that was a mistake, right, in their California. I'm sure they didn't have any intention to wield that to, uh, you know, attack pro-lifers. This is what we're facing. And in Canada, of course, you can't do sidewalk counseling on a public sidewalk without being arrested. And this is what they want to push here. This is a time for choosing. Well, Pastor Tim Keller is just kind of my stand-in for this evangelical rot in the church. Apparently has forgotten what William Wilberforce, that great British abolitionist, taught us when he said that a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. And when your faith is at that testing point, that's when you prove whether you're more committed to Christ or more committed to your reputation and what your leftist friends in the culture think about you. So given all of this and given the fact that you feel so encouraged now by my state and the state of the union, let us return to those things that we used to know. Let's open up the pages of history together, humble ourselves, and learn from our spiritual forefathers, those guardians of Western civilization who actually did care more about truth and their neighbor. 
and the country they would hand down to their posterity than their own reputation. So let's start with Abraham Lincoln. My message is called Lessons from Lincoln, Reagan, and Bonhoeffer. Um, men that I'm sure most of the people in this room are familiar with. But let's look at some vignettes from these men's lives, some of their spiritual clarity that seems to be lost on the consciousness of most American pastors today. What kind of worldview was Abraham Lincoln contending against? Well, I'd like to submit to you this evening that it's the same exact worldview and it's the same exact ideas that drive abortion today. There's nothing new under the sun. This is not new. We're contending against the same worldview. I understand the cultural and political climate is different, okay? These, these injustices are not identical, but they're wrong for the same reasons. And the ideology that drives both is the same. What is that ideology? Not all humans are persons. If you want a one sentence, not all humans are persons. Four or five words in one sentence, if you want to summarize the identical worldview between abortion and slavery, it is that. Not all humans are persons, and we as the high priests of secular progressivism. Who are the high priests of secular progressivism? Dr. Fauci, the CDC, Nancy Pelosi, Gavin Newsom. And these institutions that function more like a religious theocracy, the theocracy of progressivism, than they do as any type of political regime. So what was the worldview behind slavery? That being human was not enough to ground your rights. What racists argued that blacks were not biologically human? Some, but not really. Most of them acknowledged the black man and woman was biologically human. What did they argue? They weren't persons. So for the racists in the Democrat Party and their domestic terrorist arm, KKK then, by the way, they have a domestic terrorist arm today. It's called Antifa and BLM Incorporated. But for the Democrat Party then, it wasn't enough to be human. Being human was not enough to ground your rights. And this is the difference in debate between what we call endowment and performance. The endowment view of personhood and the performance or functionalist view of personhood. The endowment view of personhood is what we hold to as Christians. We are endowed with inalienable rights by God that among these are the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So if you've been endowed with rights, you can't take it away from anyone else and you can't give it to anyone else. They come from God. Therefore, the only thing we have in common is the fact that we're human beings, that we share a human nature. And when did we get a human nature? Uh, when we became human. And when did we become human? Uh, the moment of conception. That's what the science teaches. That's the endowment view of personhood. The performance or functionalist view of personhood is what drove slavery and it's what drives abortion today. And it says that you must perform certain functions. You must function in a certain way rather than simply being a human being. So we judge human beings based off of their cognitive abilities, their accidental properties, rather than the fact that they're a human being. Now, of course, the left has never explained why those functions are value giving in the first place. They just assume that one must be possessed of an IQ, a certain level of melanin, ability to live by yourself in order to be a person. Of course, I always like to say when they say, well, the unborn's not a person because they don't have desires, they're not viable, they can't feel pain, they're not conscious. I say, well, why did you pick those functions and accidental properties to ground personhood and rights? What about the ability to play violin and multiply? Yeah, those are, that's, that, actually, you're not a person if you can't play violin and multiply. Those are my performance functionalist accounts for personhood. And so if you're a pro-choicer and you can't do those things, right, and most of them can't multiply because they're all socialists, right? So if you can't do those things, then you're not a person and I can dismember you and call it reproductive justice. And they all say, well, Seth, that's so stupid. You can't just pick those functions and cognitive abilities and performances to justify personhood and a right to life. 
you're right, I can't just pick those. It's stupid, I have to justify why I selected those, and so do you. So do you for your functionalist account for personhood that like racist before you says not all humans are persons and we as the elite class get to decide the criteria checkbox that you must meet to meet my litmus test for personhood. Of course, they would never allow that litmus test to be wielded against them when they failed to meet those same functionalist accounts for personhood. So how did Lincoln deal with these types, this type of bigotry? Can I call it bigotry? Because what's bigotry? Discriminating against someone else based off of immutable characteristics they have no control over. That's a pretty good definition of bigotry, right? So it's particularly nasty when you're a racist because people don't have any control over their melanin. It's also particularly nasty to be pro-choice because the unborn cannot control the fact that they're smaller, less developed, and more dependent on the very individual who created them. And in an over 99% of cases, created them consensually, right? You know that 1% or half of a percent of the annual abortions are performed on women who had been raped. So how did Lincoln respond to this bigotry? Well, in 1854, he penned a little piece called Fragments on Slavery, and it's brilliant. It, he, he was using a type of rationality, rhetoric, and argumentation that would be lost on most lesbian feminist dance theory professors at our universities today, at UC Berkeley, teaching things that don't matter for jobs that don't exist, and <laughs> paying it for it with money you don't have. And now they're all saying, oh, you need to pay for my debt that I accumulated because I took it on and I'm responsible. Right? He, the, his type of rhetoric and discourse would be lost on most college professors today. Here's how he responded to the racist accounts for slavery, the racist arguments for slavery that said being human are not enough to ground your rights. You have to meet our litmus test for personhood. Here's what Lincoln said. You say A is white and B is black. It is color then. The lighter having the right to enslave the darker. Take care. By this rule, you were to be a slave to the first man you meet with a skin fairer than your own. Oops. Then Lincoln says, oh, but you do not mean color exactly. What he's doing here is he's saying, oh, you're done with that argument now. You want to move on to another one? Just like pro-choicers do when we provide a really good answer to their bigotry, and then they move to another one. Have you seen them do this? They, they don't have a single argument they use to ground abortion. They just drift all around and try to find one to trip you up. So same thing, same thing happened with racists. They would just shift to another argument, not expecting Lincoln to be so brilliant. So Lincoln says, okay, you do not mean color exactly. You mean that whites are intellectually the superior of blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them. Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. Oops. And then Lincoln says, oh, but you say it is interest. And if you can make it your interest, as the white man, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it in his interest, he has the right to enslave you. What's Lincoln saying, folks? He's saying that if you ground rights and personhood in things that come in varying degrees, then it follows that rights come in varying degrees. Do you see it? If we all held our, our palms up to one another this evening, would we all have the same shade of skin color? No, skin color comes in varying degrees, right? Do we all have the same IQ? No, IQ and intellect come in varying degrees. Do we share athleticism, musical ability in common, size, age, ethnicity? No, we don't share any of these things in common. The only thing we have in common is a human nature. We're image bearers of God. So what's Lincoln saying? He's saying, oh, oh, you're gonna make your argument to enslave the black man based off of melanin? Well, melanin comes in varying degrees. So if you ground rights on things that come in varying degrees, then rights come in varying degrees, which means that the albino rules over all for he has the palest of skin. And anyone who has a slightly darker shade of skin than the albino is a non-person and can be treated like property. Right, you racist plantation owner? 
No, he would never allow that difference in cognitive ability and functionalist account for personhood to be wielded against him. God forbid that. We're the elite class. We come up with the, we come up with the litmus test for personhood, right? They would never allow that account for personhood to be wielded against them. But as Lincoln point, is pointing out, you're putting into place the premises that justify your own enslavement. And if intellect comes in varying degrees and you ground rights on IQ, then the smartest person with the highest IQ is more of a person and has greater rights than anyone else with, with an IQ less than himself. How can you maintain human equality with this functionalist account for personhood? Of course, the answer is that you can't. So what is Lincoln teaching us? When you define human value, personhood, and rights in acquired properties, functions, and cognitive abilities, you don't just dehumanize the victim class in question, you dehumanize all human beings because none of us have those things equally and in the same degree. This is how pro-choice arguments mirror slavery arguments. It's just a new woke set of criteria for that personhood level. So for the left, who push abortion as their high sacrament, they argue that, well, the unborn is so different than us, just like the racist said the black man was so different than us. And they say the unborn is smaller, less developed, in a different environment, and more dependent. Therefore, we can kill them. But all of those things come in varying degrees. So what's the new woke criteria set that the unborn, not ironically, doesn't meet? and therefore is called a non-person? Well, here are a few. They say we can kill babies, right? And now you've heard these, because they're not self-aware, they're not conscious, they don't have any desires, they can't feel pain, and they're not viable. Anyone heard these arguments before? Yeah, these are the primary arguments used to argue that the unborn may be human, but they're untermensch, to quote the Nazis. They're subhuman, they're not full persons. Well, let's see, like Lincoln, how these arguments can be turned on their head and actually put in place the premises that justify the mistreatment of born people, the very people who push abortion and would never want it used against them. The unborn's not self-aware, yet neither are infants. Did you know the most recent scientific research suggests that infants are not self-aware until months after birth? Meaning, if an infant looks in the mirror, <laughs> you, I mean, how many of you have a baby? I have two babies, right? They're not thinking, oh yeah, there's me. I'm a unique individual who's never existed before and will never exist again, and I'm aware of the fact that that's me. No, the infant doesn't have that ability yet. So can we kill infants? And the pro-choicer goes, oh gosh, I don't really like it when you apply my bigotry this side of the womb. <laughs> then maybe you should abandon your pro-abortion bigotry. Ideas have consequences, folks. And bad ideas have victims. And nowhere is that more true today than on the issue of abortion. Oh, well, they're not conscious. Yeah, neither are you if you get knocked out in a fight when you're sleeping or when our loved ones are in a coma. So can I walk into your grandpa's hospital room when he's in a coma and slit his throat, pro-choicer? Well, actually, what if you're in the hospital room, in the other room with your family, having that, you know, that really hard conversation that some of you have had to have? Do we remove life support? What if, pro-choicer, while you're having that conversation with your family in the other room, I sneak into your grandpa's hospital room and I slit his throat? You see, he's actually not a person, and I was just exercising property reproductive justice because, you know, he wasn't conscious. How many pro-choicer do you know would be like, yes, that's a blessing of liberty, hallelujah, slit his throat? No, they would think that was deeply wrong. But what if they did decide to pull the cord, life support, and then he died anyways? then I would just say, hey, pro-choicer, it's the same thing. And the end result was the same. He was gonna die in your circumstance. He died in my circumstance. It's totally the same thing, right, pro-choicer? And they go, uh, no, I think it's different. That's really sick. 
Yeah, because human value and personhood doesn't come from these cognitive abilities and functions and accidental properties like consciousness or self-awareness. It comes from the fact that we're human beings. We have the underlying nature to be self-aware and conscious, even if we can't immediately exercise it at all stages of development and at all moments in time. Oh, we can kill the unborn because they don't have desires. Who's ever heard this? The baby doesn't know they're being aborted. Now, sometimes they actually call the baby. It's like, oops, Freudian slip. Yes, because reality is self-evident. We all know this is a baby, you bigot, right? But they say, well, the, the, the baby doesn't have any desires to go on living, so they don't know that their right to life is being violated. Oh, did you just say they have a right to life, right? So, but this is very interesting. If we can kill human beings before they have desires for that thing, if we can violate someone's right to life because they don't have a desire for a right to life, then can we kill our teenagers who are suffering the highest suicidality that we've ever seen in America, thanks to Joe Biden and the Democrats who shut down the country and told them they can't go to school? You know the suicidality is out the window right now, right, with young people? So we can actually kill all of them, right, pro-choicer? Because they don't have a desire to go on living if they have suicidal tendencies. Anyone know what Buddhists try to realize? Nirvana. What's nirvana? The eradication of what? All desires. Now, I don't think that's possible, but let's say a Buddhist reached nirvana and he does, has no desires, including the desire to go on living. Hey, pro-choicer, can I kill Buddhists who reach nirvana? Because like the fetus in the womb, they don't have a desire to go on living. And you told me that if I don't violate someone's desires, I haven't violated their rights. And the pro-choicer goes, oh, Lord, my entire worldview is blowing up. And before, Yes, exactly, because it's based on bigotry, and it's based on the same account for slavery, that not all humans are persons. What about ability to feel pain? The baby doesn't feel it. Anyone heard that? By the way, Maureen Kondik, who's a neonatologist and studies fetal pain, Maureen Kondik, go look her up, she testified before Congress several years ago, said that actually the beginning of the thalamic circuitry that's necessary to feel pain is present in the unborn child by eight weeks. Now, I know you've heard 20 weeks as the indicator for fetal pain. That's actually incorrect. By eight weeks, the unborn child can feel something. It's not the full degree of human pain, Okay. Their receptors are not that developed yet, but the baby responds to stimuli by eight weeks. By 18 weeks, Marine Conduct, neonatologist, says that it's uncontested in the scientific literature that the child feels the full range of human pain. Meaning when you kill an 18-week unborn child, it is as painful to them as if I ripped your limbs off your body. Now, are they joining us in ending abortion after 18 weeks? Because you justified abortion, pro-choicer, based on the fact that the unborn can't feel pain, which means once they do feel pain, you, you don't support abortion, right? And they go, well, no, I believe it's a woman's right through all nine months of pregnancy. Well, then don't talk about fetal pain. You don't care about it. But if we can kill people because they can't feel pain, anyone know the condition named congenital insensitivity to pain or congenital analgesia? A condition in which you cannot feel any pain. Hey, let's round up those people and murder them, right, Joe Biden? And the pro-choicer goes, well, no, 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 those people have rights. But they can't feel pain. And you said the unborn can be killed because they can't feel pain. Do you see? They're putting in place the premises that justify their own enslavement, which is the same point that Lincoln made about racist Democrats. And last one, viability. This stupid subjective term that means when you can survive outside the womb apart from your mother's body, viability. Yeah, problem with is, the problem with that is every few years we develop new medical technology that enables us to make the child viable at earlier and earlier stages. Anyone know the age of the youngest baby ever born and survived and just had their one-year-old birthday a few months ago? Yeah, 21 weeks and three days. So we've cut gestation nearly in half. And in a few more years, it'll be 20 weeks or it'll be 19 or something like this. 
So if your right to life is dependent on your viability, but then viability is a subjective term that changes every few years based off of whether an inventor comes up with something that can move viability back to an earlier stage. I mean, like, what are we talking about, right? How could personhood be based off of thoughts and neurons that might fire in an inventor's head that might lead or not lead him to invent something that enables us to make viability at an earlier stage? (laughs) But this is the logic of abortion advocates. It's wild, and it leads, of course, to human chaos. Well, these are the lessons from Lincoln. When we define human value and rights on things that come in varying degrees, it follows that rights come in varying degrees and human equality is a myth. You can throw that idea of equality in the ash heap of history. The very thing that the left, how does the left defend all their arguments? Equality. That's the word they use to argue for all of their policy prescriptions. But the very equality that they're seeking cannot be secured within their own worldview because it grounds rights not in the only thing we have in common, a human nature, but in things we don't have in common and which come in varying degrees. So that's our lesson from Lincoln. That's what he's telling us today. What about lessons from Reagan? Well, Ronald Reagan, right, arguably the best governor in California history. Now, you may or may not know this, but Ronald Reagan was previously pro-choice. Many of you do know that. You've been contending for the unborn for a lot longer than me. And Ronald Reagan actually has some blood on his hands. He actually did pass some pro-choice legislation in California that led to the killing of more unborn children. And he regretted that for the rest of his life. Now, Dr. Mildred Jefferson had a wonderful impact on Ronald Reagan. Dr. Mildred Jefferson was the founder of the National Right to Life and worked very hard pre-row to keep such a decision from impacting all 50 states. And she gave a, she was on a forum years ago making the case for the pro-life position. And it impacted Reagan so significantly that he wrote her a letter and said, that's the best defense for the pro-life position I've ever heard. And he became pro-life because of Dr. Mildred Jefferson. And he spent the rest of his life contending for the unborn, which ultimately led him to write his book, Abortion and the Conscience of a Nation. Beautiful title if you think about it, because Reagan understood that abortion really represented our cultural conscience, didn't it? Another way to put that is abortion is the litmus test of the republic. Just like slavery was a litmus test of whether we were truly a free people still and whether we were going to stand by our original values of natural rights for all individuals so governments are instituted among men to recognize and protect these rights. As slavery was a litmus test for America then, so is abortion today. And Reagan recognized that. So here's what Reagan said in his book. Here's our lesson from him. This is beautiful language. And we've talked about it some this morning and last night, but I want you to hear it from his words. He said, Abraham Lincoln recognized that we could not survive as a free land when some men could decide that others were not fit to be free and should therefore be slaves. Likewise, we cannot survive as a free country today as long as some men can decide that others are not fit to live and should therefore be abandoned to abortion and infanticide. So Reagan finishes with this line, therefore there is no cause more important, more important than affirming than the transcendent right to life of all human beings, the right without which no other rights have any meaning. The right without which no other rights have any meaning. Let me translate that to you as this. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. That is the most fundamental right. How can we trust politicians who deny and trample upon the inherent right to life of all individuals to protect any of our other rights that flow from that first and most important of all rights? While many issues are important, they don't all carry the same moral weight. We understand that, right? So how can we secure and protect our religious freedom and freedom of speech and right to bear arms if we continue to kill babies 
at the tune of a million a year. Every other right that we take for granted or that we contend for will continue to deteriorate until it too is lost. You see, the foundation of the republic is rotten, folks. The foundation of the republic was that first right, the right to life. How can we build the right to liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness on a rotten foundation? The rest of our rights are crumbling. You're watching it happen before your very eyes, aren't you? We are under God's judgment already, and we are approaching 50 years of legalized abortion and over 63 million children killed on the altar of ourselves. And yet, and yet, many of our woke brothers and sisters in the church today don't grasp this simple truth that Reagan so eloquently explains, right? They don't see the right to life as the prerequisite most important right. They see it like my president of my alma mater sees it, except there's a lot of issues. They don't see it as the prerequisite most fundamental important right that deserves more time and attention than any other right, because how can you secure any other right without that first right? They see abortion as just one among many issues. And so they insist that if we're really pro-life, and have you heard this from woke evangelicals and supposed pro-lifers? Hey, if you're really pro-life, you'd be tackling poverty, climate change, disease, and universal health care. This is the redefinition of pro-life that has been happening in the culture and the pro-life movement for about a decade or so, and it's doing a lot of damage to the pro-life movement. Now let me pause here. Our ethic as Christians is both broad and inclusive, amen? We're called to love all human beings, which is why I don't have a problem with that phrase from womb to tomb on the surface. I don't have a problem with it. We as Christians have a broad and inclusive ethic. But listen, it does not follow that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must be broad and inclusive as well. But isn't that what we're told by supposed pro-lifers and then those woke pro-lifers who actually vote for Democrats, but they tell us we're pro-life? <laughs> to which I say, you cannot tell your neighbor you love them, but that it also should be legal to kill them. And when you voted for Democrats, that's exactly what you told your pre-born neighbors. But what do they levy us with? This accusation that don't be pro-life, be whole life. Have you heard this redefinition of pro-life? So they say that being pro-life is not enough. You must also contend on other issues. And too many pro-lifers, out of a desire to avoid accusations of hypocrisy or apathy toward the suffering of others, they accept this premise. They accept this redefinition of pro-life. But how does it follow that because the pro-life movement opposes intentionally killing innocent human beings and seeks to protect them in law, that we are therefore responsible for every other societal ill? Have you noticed that it's only the pro-life movement that gets this critique, by the way? <laughs> Imagine telling abolitionists, you're not really against slavery unless you're providing soup kitchens for middle-class white people who aren't rich enough to buy plantations and enslave blacks on them. What are you doing about those other issues? We're all very grateful for the fact that the abolition, abolitionist movement had one singular goal and focus, end slavery. And we would never demand that they accept responsibility for anything else, right? Is the American Cancer Society not really anti-cancer? Because they only focus on solving one form of disease, those selfish bigots. No, we say praise God that you have a narrow-minded focus towards solving one thing. Praise God that no other movement gets this Accusation. I guess Oscar Schindler wasn't really against the Holocaust because he only focused his wealth, energy, and money on saving Jews. That selfish bigot didn't try to save anyone else. No movement gets this accusation except ours. That we have to be whole life? Yes, in our personal lives, we are for the whole life. But that doesn't mean that the pro-life movement, a vastly underfunded and understaffed movement, must broaden their operational objectives to try to solve every other form of societal ill. Who could possibly do that? 
To quote Frederick the Great, he who fights everywhere fights nowhere. Now, I think we should finish by saying this. We're on this point, working to increase quality of life outside the womb is an honorable calling. Amen? Amen. I would never demean that. But far more important is securing that first and most important of all rights for those who don't have it and cannot work to secure it. Life for the unborn. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. So we're told that we have to do more than ending the greatest human rights violation in human history to prove our pro-life credentials. And mostly those critiques are coming from people who vote to keep abortion legal. Take your bigotry somewhere else. Now, why do I make this point? Because of what Reagan said. The right to life is fundamental. So it deserves that much more time and attention to secure for those who don't have it. We're not not pro-life if we only focus on the unborn. And worse yet, the wokest among us in the church and conservative movement even insist that while they're pro-life, they can't be single-issue Voters, you've heard this one, right? Why are you elevating abortion pro-lifer as a litmus test of the republic? Why are you treating it as a morally fundamental issue over and above other ones? You need to approach the polls and care, carry all of these issues on the same playing field. Abortion, and then they sneak in a bunch of leftist causes. Universal health care, universal basic income, open borders. Then they add some things that we all agree are great, like solving poverty and soup kitchens and ending what they call systemic racism, even though abortion is the greatest example of systemic racism, and they vote for it anyways, but that's a lecture for another time. That, that you need to approach the polls carrying all of these issues on the same playing field. Don't treat abortion as a litmus test of the republic. Now imagine telling that to Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass, you narrow-minded, single-issue bigot. Why are you trying to get people to vote only for Republicans? You see, you shouldn't be a single-issue voter. Now listen, I know the Democrats are the party of slavery with their domestic terrorists on the KKK, and they, you know, literally want to entrench slavery forever. I understand that, but listen, they have other really good life causes. Like they provide soup kitchens to middle-class white people and poor white people who don't have plantations and therefore don't have black people to enslave them on. You know, and they're trying to do universal basic income for some black people who do get freed um, if Republicans free them and Harriet Tubman helps them out. And you know, they have other helpful policies and entitlement programs. So you know what you should really do, Frederick Douglass, you narrow-minded, single-issue bigot? You should encourage people to vote for the Democrat Party of the 1850s because that will improve quality of life for slaves who are freed. Is that the most asinine thing you've ever heard? <laughs> now switch the word slavery with abortion and you have the critique against us. Don't be single issue voters. Of course we should be single issue voters. And they would never say the same thing about slavery. Politicians who kill children shouldn't be trusted to help children. And what they say is that we must, <laughs> yeah, amen. So what are they doing? They're conflating, they're conflating quality of life outside the womb with protection of life in it. No, 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 no. They're favoring quality of life outside the womb over protection of life in it. Anyone who does that is a bigot who doesn't deserve to have their hands on the reins of political power. And yet we have pro-lifers telling us not to be single issue voters because they say, well, Democrats have a broader inclusive, inclusive ethic of life. You know who said that? The pro-life evangelicals for Biden group. Do you remember that group last year? Pro-life evangelicals for Biden. You know what my response was to that? Did you hear of their new group, Fiscal Conservatives for Karl Marx? Yeah, it's a great group. And their new one is Believe All Women for Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. And then their last one is Abolitionist for Stephen Douglas. Oh yeah, the racist Democrat who ran against Lincoln in 1860. 
abolitionist for Stephen Douglas. What a stupid statement. But pro-life evangelicals for Biden is somehow you just speaking truth to power and ensuring quality of life for those that you didn't lynch in the womb through your politicians and movement? Disgusting. The selective application of this single-issue voting critique reveals that our critics and some pro-lifers who have adopted this belief either don't believe the unborn to be fully human, or worse yet, they, don't, they do believe the unborn are fully human, but that the genocide of those babies is not serious enough to justify voting single-issue. But it is, you know why? Because the right to life is the most fundamental right. If you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. And didn't you watch this play out in real time in 2020, folks? Oh yeah, Democrat politicians, let's just name the party, at the state and federal level, denying the natural right to liberty to you, to gather, to worship, to sing, to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment and to evaluate your own level of risk. They said, you don't have that liberty to do that. In my state of California, Newsom Leaney, he says, no singing in churches, you Christian rubes. Yeah, he had a, that was an executive order, right? Some bill I didn't vote on. And he said, you can't sing in churches. Now, if you're a deacon in the religion of progressivism as you march through the streets of LA and you sing your liturgy, America sucks, burn it down, with BLM and Antifa, and you sing that religious text, apparently COVID becomes woke and it only targets conservatives and Christians. So Newsom had no problem with the spittle flying off the lips of woke leftists in the streets of LA as they burned down majority black-owned businesses. He had no problem with that spittle and no, not a single Democrat in the country accused BLM and Antifa of being super spreaders who were killing granny. You see, only Christians got that when their pews were a third full and were trying to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. They're using this to silence you because they understand that the greatest threat to their political regime is Christians who understand that they owe an account to God. And when they stand before him on the day of judgment, they will only owe an account for him to what they did or did not do to end the genocide of his babies. The thing that makes the Democrats the most afraid is Christians exercising righteousness as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God because then they might not be accountable to him, to Newsom, to keep you silent. Oh, look, if you don't get the right to life right, liberty gets taken away. What about property? How many state troopers and FBI protected business owners as their businesses were burned to the ground? You saw the footage of cops stepping back and allowing it to happen. What happened to our property rights? If you don't get the right to life right, every other right that you take for granted or that maybe you do contend and defend will deteriorate before your very eyes and you will not recognize the country that you hand down to your children and grandchildren. Friends, as long as our country continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be attacked and compromised and endangered. By ignoring the natural right to life that all human beings have, we should not be surprised when our government ignores every other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. This is what Reagan has to teach us today. The supremacy of that first natural right that our entire republic is built upon. And this is what our woke leftist Christian pastors and alleged pro-lifers don't understand. That by saying that they shouldn't be single issue voters and that they should have a whole life perspective, they're actually siphoning votes away from the only political party who could actually restore personhood to the preborn in the first place. Yes, an imperfect Republican party filled with sinners, but a party that's contending for the life of the unborn nonetheless, and the only party that can present us a viable opportunity to protect and love our preborn neighbors. Now let's finish with Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor, martyr, prophet, and spy. By the way, that's the name of Eric Metaxas's phenomenal biography on this man. If you haven't read it, go buy it now on Amazon. Pastor, martyr, prophet, spy. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer attempted to arrange an assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler and was murdered for his trouble, right? By the way, he didn't appreciate or respond to the woke leftist pastors in Germany who said, uh, Bonhoeffer, obey Romans 13. Submit to the governing authorities. Yeah, he tried to murder the governing authorities because the rest of Romans 13 says that God puts them there for your good, which means that when they cease to do good, they cease to be the authority. And who's the governing authority in America? We, the people. So the politicians are accountable to us, not the other way around. And yet, did you know Adolf Hitler loved to use Romans 13 to try to keep churches in obedience? Oh yeah, it was one of his favorite verses to try to keep the church silent. It's almost like history repeats itself, huh? Eberhard Bethke, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's best friends, summarized the position that the confessing church was in. What was the confessing church? It was the church that Dietrich Bonhoeffer founded with others in order to try to save the Jews. The confessing church. Why did they call themselves the confessing church? Hmm, maybe to say, we're the only ones confessing the real Christ. And if you're silent on the genocide of your Jewish neighbors, or worse yet, as you know, many German churches were actually preaching Nazi bigotry with the veneer of Christianity on it. Huh? This is called syncretism. How many churches today are preaching pro-abortion bigotry or critical race theory with the veneer of Christianity in order to deceive the sheep and keep the very institution that can hold government to account silent? because they know that an awakened church is the greatest sleeping giant in this country. And if she were to wake up, everything would change and the rights of the preborn would be finally protected. Here's what Eberhard Bethke said about a situation of Christians confessing the real Christ as a government was waging genocide on their neighbors. Does that sound applicable to our time? Here's what Bethke says. Bonhoeffer introduced us in 1935 to the problem of what we today call political resistance. The levels of confession and resistance could no longer be kept neatly apart. The escalating persecution of the Jews generated an increasingly intolerable situation, especially for Bonhoeffer himself. We now realized that mere confession, no matter how courageous, inescapably meant complicity with the murderers. Even though there would always be new acts of refusing to be co-opted, and even though we would preach Christ alone Sunday after Sunday, during the whole time, the Nazi state never considered it necessary to prohibit such preaching. Why should it, he asks. Bonhoeffer's best friend says, why should the Nazi state prevent our preaching? We were preaching Christ. Maybe because the gospel being preached wasn't a gospel that got you uncomfortable. Get your boots on the battlefield, get off the bench, and contend on behalf of your neighbors who were being genocided. Maybe because it was bon what Bonhoeffer called what? A cheap grace which means a Christ you created in your own image to make you comfortable with your apathy as you abdicate your moral, spiritual, and political duty to seek the good of the city and hold back those staggering towards slaughter and speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Maybe because it was near heresy, it was a Jesus you created in your own image. So the confessing church comes to this realization that the gospel they were preaching was a gospel that the Nazis appreciated. Oh yeah, you keep that cheap grace liturgy in your church, but don't you take that gospel out into the public square where you might pose a threat to our regime. So Bethke ends with this observation. He says, thus we were approaching the borderline between confession and resistance. And if we did not cross this border, our confession was going to be no better than cooperation with the criminals. And so it became clear where the problem lay for the confessing church. We were resisting by way of confession, but we were not confessing by way of resistance. 
In other words, the only way that the resistance of the church to the genocide happening to the Jews evidenced itself was through words. Confession. Oh yeah, we're anti-Holocaust. We are. But how many churches did anything to stop the genocide? Just like today, how many churches say, oh, we're a super pro-life church. Oh yeah, we give a one-time donation to the Pregnancy Resource Center once a year. And maybe we host a table at their, at their banquet. We're super pro-life. And that's the only way that their resistance to the genocide of abortion evidenced itself. And that type of confession, that type of cheap grace, is the exact type of cheap grace that the party of death loves from churches in America is when they stay silent and keep their liturgy in the church while they build the city, they build the walls to convert the posterity of this country to the religion of secular progressivism. Confessing pro-life beliefs is not enough. It must lead to resistance. If you want to know how you would have lived in 1940s Germany or 1850s America, it's how you're living on the issue of abortion today. For one simple reason, the power of normalization. These injustices were normalized and defended under disgusting euphemisms like ethnic cleansing, property rights, and reproductive justice. And the culture was more impacted, the church was more impacted by the cultural secular liturgy than by their own Bibles and Christian worldview. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. We look down our noses at 1940s churches and 1850s churches and we go, how could they have allowed these injustices? What was wrong with them? They didn't have a very robust faith. What are you doing on your genocide, Christian? It's easy to look down our noses at those men and wonder why they didn't stand now. But that's how powerful bigotry is, huh? It blinds you to what would otherwise be obvious truths about human nature. What truth? All humans are persons and created in the image of God. Our duty is simply that of the good Samaritan, which is to love our neighbor. And yet, who walked by the bleeding victim? Pastors a Levite and a priest on the way to their synagogue on Saturday night to prep their message. You see, they might have confessed anti-street mugging beliefs, but when a dude was beat up bleeding on the side of the road, what did they do? Luke's gospel says they actually walked by on the other side of the road. What? But love your neighbor, that's a bleeding neighbor. Too busy, too righteous, cheap grace, confession alone, not resistance. It was the good Samaritan, the bleeding victim's natural enemy, because remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. Who, when he saw the bleeding victim, he had compassion. He bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, he put him on his own donkey, so he had to walk. He took him to an inn, he nursed him back to health. Then he told the innkeeper, I have to go now. When I come back, I'm gonna pay you for any of the other costs that accumulated in caring for this bleeding victim while I was gone. Radical sacrifices of his time, his energy, and his money to love his neighbor. The Levite and the priest confessed the right beliefs, but they did not have compassion or show compassion or resist the evil of what had happened to this bleeding victim. Friends, for 48 years, the American church has been singing louder over the silent screams of God's precious unborn children. The silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs led Francis Schaeffer to once say, that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe one day when we stand before God, we will give an account for what we did to help in the genocide of God's baby image bearers. I believe each one of us will be held account to what we did or did not do on this issue. And I pray that your response would be that of William Wilberforce 
after we hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, we may respond, let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. The babies are waiting for us to intervene. Their screams and body parts run through the American sewage system. God is waiting for his people to stand in the gap. And you know what? The world is watching you. The world is watching the bride of Christ to see if this will be our finest hour or our final hour for the sake of the unborn, for the sake of the posterity of the country, and for the sake of our Savior and our duty. I hope those will be your words. In the meantime, I will see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven, yeah? Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that episode. Uh, would you share this episode with someone? Um, as I often say on the show, people have not thought deeply about the abortion issue. Uh, you know this. And so that means that most times people have not been actually exposed to very careful thinking on the abortion issue. And I think this lecture and this speech um, covered a lot of ground philosophically and historically, and I think would be an excellent conversation starter to have a friend watch and talk over a cup of coffee. We'll be cutting it up online. We ask that you share that as well to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. If you enjoy this show, please give us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. We appreciate that. If you want to book me for an event or sign up for my newsletter, go to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in babyboyer.com. My schedule's filling up quickly and we'll be announcing my university speaking tour soon as well. And so if you want to bring me onto a university campus, uh, head over and request that before dates fill up. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Hey! Hey!